After having looked at the, the crappy way that my furnace was put in, I can certainly understand why companies keep getting hacked. It must be just a horrible thing when you consistently fail. How the hell did I set that up? Yeah, I'm going to turn that shit off. Shall we? Let's go. Today is Monday, June 30th, 2014. This is episode 74 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and as always, joining me tonight is Mr. Andrew Kellett. Good evening, Jerry. Good evening, faithful listener. Good evening. And just a reminder that the thoughts and opinions we express on this podcast are ours and do not represent those of our respective employers. So, the the first thing I have tonight is just a very brief uh, word of advice from Bob, who was who was really busy on a uh, incident response engagement. Bob wanted me to pass on that uh, antivirus companies don't always know if a file that you're submitting to them is definitely a virus or not. And so if if you submit something that you suspect may be involved in a uh, piece of malware, just because they come back and, and give you the thumbs down uh, doesn't necessarily mean that it actually wasn't. And uh, you know, apparently Bob uh, is working on a case where... Uh, one antivirus company accepted this, uh, and they they actually had a uh, this this uh, Bob's customer had a agreement with a large uh, antivirus company who happened to have the same name as some other crazy person, and uh, um, said that it was not a virus. And several weeks later, uh, it turned out that in fact it was a virus. Or, Oops. Or let let me be let me be uh, uh, very clear here. Right, it was not malware unto itself. It was a component of a larger piece of malware. Which, which, by the way, and, and that I think. Um, what, what do you mean? What do you mean by component? Like a like a dropper or like a? No, like a, a a driver. So think about oh. a think about a network a, a driver that that some malware inserts into the network stack. Mm. And then uses to uh, intercept, command, and control traffic, and that sort of thing. Well, that's interesting. Like, how would you know, right? Uh, let's say you are a random AV vendor, or even let's say you throw it at against, uh, you know, like a FireEye or some other sandboxing technology. I think they would all fail on that. Uh, you know, how would you know, right? It's not something you can detonate easy. It's not something you can easily, unless you start decompiling it, really looking at it. And even then, it may not. I think the I think the, the the particular problem, as I understood it from Bob here, is that this didn't actually have any necessarily obviously malicious components to it. It it served a specific purpose and basically accepted commands, you know, like a, like any other DLL kind of a, a, a deal would. And 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 so because of that, I think that's why it wasn't uh, you know it wasn't wasn't detected as malicious because by itself it, it really i guess isn't malicious however um you know it's it's purpose for being was in supporting some other piece of malicious code so um you know the i think that the the problem here or what what bob worley was trying to impress on me was that 
malware is getting more complicated and they you know they often are not just one one file and so if you find something that let's say is uh you know is 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 a driver causing your system some some problems and you don't think it should be there and your antivirus co- company comes back and says that it's benign uh you know that that shouldn't be taken as a sign that you know it's all clear there there is probably possibly more more work to be done so yeah that's you know it goes back to that false sense of security and yeah it's interesting yep so anyhow uh get, let's get into stories our our first story tonight comes from CSO online before we do we should tease the audience oh yes yes let's let's do so so we have a uh we have a listener mailbag episode coming That's up later right we're going to the questions yes and i'll tell you right now i'm not sure we're going to be good at answering them but we're going to try i i i mean let's be clear it's not going to stop us i mean our ignorance is not going to stop us from providing answers <laughs> True words have yet ever been spoken on this show. <sighs> so stay tuned. After stories, mail mail from the listeners. That's right. We have no fancy bumper music, but it does tell you you should write us with questions, comments, praises, complaints, threats. Sometimes they'll get read. You can even make us benefactors of your will, whatever, whatever makes you happy. That's right. All right. Sorry. On to stories. On to stories. So CSO Online... The title is Airport Breach, a sign for IT industry to think security, not money. I, 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 where to begin with? So, so let, me, let me just kind of run through the story and, and maybe you can pick up some of the, the craziness. Yeah, so, I'm wrapping my head in duct tape while you do this. Okay, so, so two airports. And, and you gotta, you gotta, it would be helpful if you get a piece of paper and a pen to... to to follow along because this is going to this is going to get crazy right so two airports were compromised by unknown hackers the airports were not were, were not identified okay uh and the point of this article is that there's a need this kind of points to a need for increased focus on national security and less on money all of our all of us money grubbing security people should um you know should should come over and uh, do the, the the benevolent thing, but okay. Let's let's keep moving on. So CIS, who is uh you know the Center for Internet Security, um, actually said that there in in 2013 there were APT attacks on four airports, but then later they said that it was actually eight airports, uh, but then later uh, they said it was actually 75 airports. So um, yeah, I I guess it was 75. Well, I, for a while there, they had two, four, eight. They they were going quite, you know, good exponential growth. Then they jumped to seventy five and completely I, destroyed. I see that I, whole pattern. I, right, I would have thought maybe sixty four. Yeah, you know, or or, or one twenty eight would have been a good number. But sure. they went from eight to seventy five and and screwed it all up. So so um, the 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 author here, or, or actually not the author, but this person named Murray Jennix, who's a professor at San Diego State University. Um, and I never understood how San Diego was a state, but that's neither here nor there. Um, th- <laughs> yes, bad joke on a, on a Monday. Um, so I guess the, the, the point here, or he's 
that this uh, Murray is trying to make is that there's not a lot of financial incentive behind attacking an airport. And so the motives, if you, if you negate that it's financial are, are basically probably strategic, right? So they're, whoever's attacking this is doing it to gain a, uh, an upper hand in the event of some kind of war or conflict to be able to, you know, maybe shut down the airports. And apparently there's 75 of them, I guess. And the uh, the method of, of infection apparently was a, a good old spear phishing emails where the victims were were culled from some kind of public document related to aviation. Uh, the document itself wasn't named. What the actual attack did or didn't do wasn't described. So far, this is a really informative article. It's it's tr- it's terribly informative. However, uh, the net of the article is that yes, us money grabbing bastards should come over and uh, and and work in the national security uh, you know world and instead of trying to make the internet cheaper and faster. Uh, it, but you know, I I think uh, I, to me. Some of the problem I had with this, obviously, other than you know the the crazy problem with numbers, is he, Murray says uh, to to help defend against such attacks, people need to be educated on the signs that an email might be malicious, and and I you know I think the problem is, um, you know that that's that's kind of yesterday's advice. 1997 called their infosec plan, right? <laughs> is you know looking for a way home. It's it is uh, it's becoming increasingly difficult to do that, and and I uh, you know I think that security people have to come to the to the realization. And and by the way, this sucks, right? This is not a great this is not a great thing. It is really difficult. It's it's becoming increasingly hard to tell. You know, a population of of people, even sometimes technically literate people, what to look for because you know these things are the, the adversaries here are becoming so well refined in their tactics. All right, where should I start? Have at it. First off, I agree wholeheartedly with your point. If user education in a vacuum worked, we would not be at the place we're at today. We've been drawing user education for years and years and years and years. Am I saying user education isn't valuable? There's a part of me that thinks it's a failed attempt. Uh, I, I think that user education as one piece of a much more comprehensive strategy that includes a lot of technical controls is helpful. But if you're dependent fully upon user education, yeah, you're in serious trouble. So, a couple of thoughts. First off, let, let me ask you something, Jerry. Do, do you know, just in general day-to-day life, when you meet a pilot? Yes, I do. And, and what would that be? Uh, because they tell me. That's right. So as a pilot, I can tell you that concrete doesn't stop working when a computer is down. So if their thought is a strategic plan to take out airports in some sort of conflict, about the only really thing that is vulnerable 
that would really hurt an airport is probably local radar, center radar, departure and approach radar, and the systems that trade information about flights between those uh, you know, various ATC facilities. Otherwise, as long as radio is up and working, those airports can function. Radar is probably the most vulnerable thing. So, mind you, nothing in here talks about them going after radars or shutting down radars. But just as an aside, if I were doing a threat analysis against a airport infrastructure, I'd be looking at radar and I would be looking at inter-ATC communications. Um, both of which, by the way, have backup plans. So, everything else is basically 50s errors technology and really tough to shut down via a quote-unquote cyber attack. You know, you know what I bet it is? Please it, tell me. It, I bet you it's the train. It could be the train. You I shut mean, down a big, yeah. Train. Think about, think about in, in Atlanta, you know, if that train shuts down and you got to walk all the way from, from the terminal to, you know, Concourse D. <laughs> it's not, it's, of course, we have no idea the size of these airports, right? They could be international airports. They could be regional airports. They could be little tiny uh, local airports. Exactly. I'm assuming, right. I'm assuming if they have an IT infrastructure of some variety, they're probably at least medium sized. Uh, and we don't know. Is this you know airline infrastructure? Is this FAA infrastructure? Who is this? We don't know. Yeah. Is it right? is it a control tower or is it the uh, you know baggage claim? <laughs> right. We, we, we have, we have no, no idea. We got no idea. So not to just keep harping on what we don't know, but let me. The other point I want to get into is the underlying implication of this article is offensive to me, that if money is your motivator in this industry, then you cannot be secure, that that you cannot possibly be motivated by any sort of defensive mindset, right? That's like saying, you know, cops really shouldn't be paid. They should just want to protect their neighborhood. I'm offended by that. I I think it's wrong. And this, by the way, is the thought process of an academic. And I'm going to say this, and it's going to be controversial. Every time I have worked with pure academics, they do not understand real-world security. They understand their lab. They understand the theory. They may know TCPIP better than I do, but they don't understand what happens when you put that stuff out in the real world. And they get it wrong time and time again. So pure academics, I love you, but you don't know what the hell you're talking about when it comes to real-world security. And send me the hate mail. I'm ready for it. The other thing I would challenge in this report is the concept of there's no money to be made going after airport infrastructure. That is completely false. That is the same mindset that companies have of, well, we've got nothing you know, that a hacker would want, so we don't need to deploy information security technologies. Complete BS. Anything from just the user, empl- the employee data is valuable. You have no idea. There are so many APTs out Well, I shouldn't use APTs. There's so many various attacks out there that are widespread and random that will spread to whatever they can find that's vulnerable. That airport could have been targeted. It could have been complete happenstance. But to say that there's nothing here of value for a hacker, therefore it must be a nation state with a strategic objective, I think is complete conjecture and not a rational conclusion. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing at an airport that accepts credit cards, right? Um, (laughs) Well, yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) My last point is that, you know, these guys, okay, CIS, right? I'm not... I've had friends work for CIS, and, and I know a little bit about them. But they're a government-endorsed nonprofit, right? And in essence, you know, my fundamental message here is that 
they have this holier than thou attitude in this article about well all you know we have this altruistic notion of national security and we're not mercenaries going for the money i'd say get off your high horse you know in general the government or government run entities suck at doing almost anything it related the private sector is leaps and bounds ahead of them so if they're trying to say that the private sector which is money motivated isn't capable of keeping up with these attacks I completely, completely disagree with that notion. And just to be clear, I'm not, I'm not convinced that it's, uh, it's actually CIS that is saying that. I think it's that uh, professor uh, from. Yeah, you might be right. San That's Diego good. State. Yeah, I think the report, the report about the, uh, the the 75 affected airports came from CIS. So. You threw this article in here just to get me off on a rant. Well, see, I knew it, it is the it, it sits at the nexus of all the things you care about, you know, airplanes and hacking and, you know, <laughs> your your libertarian uh uh leanings. So I you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I knew it was going to get you going. Good. Good. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So um yeah, so so let's move on. Our next next story comes from Wired. And the topic is hospital networks are leaking data, leaving critical devices vulnerable. You know, and this is where you need that dun 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 sound. Which yeah, we need to like steal the so- the the, uh, the the various audio bumps from uh, like you know SVU Law and Order. Yeah, yes, something. I mean, jeez. If it wouldn't get us sued, we'd we'd be all over that. Oh, and if we had an audio engineer. Yeah, yeah, I got to get on that. Uh, Can't you, like, force one of your children into that role? I mean, they they are your minions, aren't they? They're not very good minions. Mm. Nope. You nope. need more wolves. Uh, exactly. So, the, uh, the, the, the story here, it's a, it's a pretty long story, but basically what, what a couple of researchers who presented a report at ShakaCon was uh, uh, related to hospitals having some systems connected to the net, to the internet and you know essentially being discoverable so you could you could you could probe these systems and essentially map out their intern their <laughs> the network's innards by looking at the you know querying smb and getting a map of host names and and whatnot, and and the the problem they point out is those host names are often quite descriptive about what what they are. You know, it's you know it's the defibrillator in operating room two, or you know the PC in uh, in in some cardiologist's room, and and that that sort of thing. And you know the point they go further and say that you know once you get into the hospital network. It's kind of you know all all chaotic too because there's lots of uh, these medical devices which are not by themselves very secure you know so you have you have uh, um, pumps you know med- medicine pumps uh, I think they call it infusion pumps in fact that uh, that can be controlled by the network and there's no authentication and you know they're they're relatively easy. Uh, if you're able to get to them to to muck with, and there are Bluetooth uh, controlled defibrillators, which which are you know conceivably uh, not a great thing to to be able to control either. And and so their 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 point is that all of this stuff kind of aggregated together 
creates kind of a bad situation where you know these systems on that are sitting on, on out on the internet providing kind of a window into the hospital uh, could itself be hacked and they go on actually say that a number of these systems are vulnerable to conficker and by the way if they're vulnerable to conficker I don't know how they're not infected with conficker because last I checked it was like 10 minutes before a system on the internet would would get uh, infected so but so I was thinking about that just to pop in here real quick sure what they're saying is the machine that is exposing this SMB enumeration mm-hmm is easily accessible, but perhaps the machines on the inside are not as easily accessible for conflict or just nail them. Well, I, I, and I, I think you're, I think you're right. You're spot on, but if this system is out on the internet and it is, that's the one they're pulling and, and, and querying this data from, and it is vulnerable to conflict it's unless, unless yeah, there's, unless just there's, a matter of moments. Exactly. Yeah. So, so, you know, there, there must be more to the story and on, on, on things being filtered out or there's IPS or some, something. There's some way, there's something going on there. There's a little more to the story that I don't, I don't quite have. But be that as it may, point is you got this system that really has no business being exposed to the internet, presenting a, a, a very real possibility of being a pivot point into the organization and you know once once somebody's in there if they have the desire to do you know bad stuff there's kind of the sky is the limit uh the other thing they point out is that you know this this just creates you know even without that pivot point concept it creates a very handy map for an attacker to create some packaged malware that they could that could be delivered via a phishing email and uh, you know it's just not a, not a great situation, and they they point out that their research focused on just a couple of uh, of hospitals, but in in looking around the world, they found that this is a pretty common problem, and it it kind of syncs with many of the reports we we keep reading about um, healthcare companies in general not being very sophisticated when it comes to security. So um, it's. You know, it's just just a, a a very disappointing kind of a, a a situation, and I think it comes back to the point that you know hospitals are very focused on on one thing, right? And and that's that's delivering care. They are the the networks and whatnot are very very utilitarian, and we see that time and time again with these breaches. You know that 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 pop up. The most recent one with those two hospitals that got fined the record HIPAA penalty, Uh, you know, a doctor set up a server there. And we never found out much more about that. But, you know, it's obvious that that hospitals view IT as very, very utilitarian. It's a cost of of doing business that has to be minimized. They don't put a lot of thought uh, or, or effort into securing it. And, you know, it's sooner or later, it's, it's going to become a real problem for them. Yeah, I would agree. You know, it's it's there's so many basics that they're missing here, and uh, I think it's important. And you know, I, I think awareness is probably the first step. So this is, uh, you know, I think this is a good a good thing to to shine the light on, and we'll we'll see where it goes. And obviously, if you work for a hospital, you know, show Dan is your friend. <laughs> Figure out where you're where mm-hmm. you're exposed, and uh, you know that. This, this stuff isn't complicated, and there's lots and lots of resources available. 
just a good pen test slash vulnerability assessment wouldn't cover a ton of this stuff. Absolutely. Definitely. All right, so moving on, our next and actually last story comes from Ars Technica. And there's actually a couple of different articles from Ars about this. There was a, a new industrial control APT-like thing called Havex or Dragonfly or uh, about a half a dozen other names. And, um, you know, I, I guess it's not really son of Stuxnet because we already had, you know, the son of Stuxnet. So I guess this is like the grandchildren of Stuxnet. I would say it's Stuxnet's son's brother's cousin's roommate. Maybe it's a nephew. Could be. Stux, yeah. Well, or, or like you said, it could be could be farther removed. But in, in any I, event... I, I just wanted to make a Spaceballs reference. <laughs> yes. But that's fine. You can shoot it down. That's okay. That's okay. I got to watch that movie again. I'm really disappointed there wasn't a second one, by the way. But anyhow... So, so the, to me, the attack itself isn't all that interesting. I mean, yeah, it, these things are are pretty narrow in their focus, right? And and yes, it's obviously a, a potentially damaging thing in that this conceivably opened up uh, these electrical utilities and whatnot to espionage and and the the specter of sabotage it's not very clear that they could have done that or not but what's acutely interesting to me is the way they distributed the malware and and so so this malware was actually distributed by the attackers compromising the websites you know the download sites of some legitimate software providers that that uh, provided specific software for industrial control systems. So there were three different providers, and each one of them had their website compromised, and the software uh, available for download was re- replaced with a repackaged version that included this this me- this relatively sophisticated malware. And the in the the thinking, you know, to me, the really interesting question becomes: How do you how do you even defend against that? And that is a tough one. This is nasty. But I had a couple thoughts. Uh, back in the olden days, if you were sort of like a hardcore Uber nerd, you used to compare MD5 hashes of what you downloaded and what was posted as the safe MD5 hash. Now, the problem with this philosophy is that, one, who the hell has time for that today, especially in the age of automatic updates, which we like. And second, if I'm a really sophisticated bad guy and I own your website, I bet that MD5 hash is probably on the website somewhere. Exactly. I can go, I can go alter it there. I mean, the MD5 hashes are more about making sure you didn't have a corrupted download. Right. Um, so that's a tough one. Let's say you've got whitelisting software, but you trust an updater, as a lot of whitelisting software can do, right? Like, for instance, uh, to make my administrative headache not too heavy, I can say anything coming from that updater for Adobe, I automatically trust anything that updater gives me. Well, you're screwed there because it's coming from the valid repository. Right. Or, or if it's the first time you've installed it, you know, you're, you're going to profile your whitelisting sure. based on 
well, was just installed because you downloaded it from the, quote, official safe repository. So what this leaves me with in my mind is once again going back to ignore the vector. The vector is irrelevant and assume you will be hacked. And how do you set up monitoring and alerting mechanisms to find the activity of that malware? It's the only thing I can go with. Yeah, I mean, there, there is, a, you know, I guess, one, one step farther you can go, which I, st- I think is probably still uh, surmountable, and that's, that's actually uh, adopting a signing strategy, you know, where, where you, you have a, a you know, the, the, the software is signed. But even that, but, I don't think is that, if you've got an advanced attacker, I don't think that's that big of a problem. Yeah, you know, it's not a bad thought, though. And the other thought that I also had was, if you are employing some sort of automatic sandboxing detonation technology, a la FireEye or, or competitors, it's possible that when you go to download this, it's automatically grabbed and profiled and may come up as malicious in that profile of that detonation, uh, depending you know, and then, and then you're really in for a loop because then you're saying, "Well, wait a minute, this is legitimate software from ABC.com." Yep. So how do I, you know, then it's really interesting. So I think the key takeaway here is that you've got to be careful what you trust. It goes back to a conversation we've had on many, many shows. What do you trust and why? What are your trust assumptions, and are they valid? Right, and well, I think. I think if anything, this points out that you you can't implicitly trust the vendors, you know, the, the the authoritative repository of software. But that makes your job so damn difficult. But but you said it earlier, right? You know, you, you have to focus. You know, you've got to focus less on the 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 unobtainable goal of. You know, perfect protection because it's not gonna it's not gonna be yeah, there. Right. You've gotta you've got to mix in some ability to detect when things go wrong. You know, this is probably not a really common kind of attack factor. Maybe it will become more common. Don't don't really know. But you know, if you have good, as you pointed out, if you've got good, you know, good ancillary controls to detect things uh, that are that are amiss, you know, you you. You may very well be able to, but but then again, you know, there's not a whole lot of detail yet about actually how this thing uh, communicates out to the world, right? So we don't know mm-hmm. necessarily if if it's something that would would be you know also really hard to, to detect. Yeah, in essence, this is a watering hole attack, is what it really is. Absolutely, and uh, you know, but like you said, it could be a, it could be a pocket case, but it's good to to be aware of these and. You know, keep an eye on them. Yep, and that that was why I, I thought this was interesting not not to go on to the you know to the big APT fluff fest that that everybody is right now. But uh, I, I thought I thought the uh, the method of of attack was much more interesting to me. So now is our uh, you know our our listener mail. So uh, yeah, I guess you know insert your uh, your own imagined bumper music here and we'll get into it <laughs> so the the first uh, the first thing we have is a follow-up from from uh, one of our readers uh, actually a couple of our readers followed up when we talked about the ipmi or the bmc controllers 
a couple, I think there were two or three different episodes where we've, we've talked about these and I, I, I'm pretty sure I, or, or you or both of us kind of railed on how, you know, how hard is this to, to keep under control, you know, and apparently it can be kind of difficult sometimes. And in the case of super micros pointed out to us, uh, super micros motherboards, uh, usually do have a dedicated BMC or, or IPMI port. However, if for whatever reason, when the system is booted, there isn't a link, the link state isn't detected on that management interface, the uh, the IPMI multiplexes over to the main Ethernet interface. That's so wrong. <laughs> and uh, and you know we'll we'll uh, we'll try to retrieve a DHCP address, and you know, and you can't, you apparently you can't disable that behavior. Oh. So, uh, so hurts my soul. So I wanted to, I wanted to talk about a couple of ideas I had to, to, to handle that. And, you know, the first one would be don't offer DHCP on your server network as, yeah. Or, or if you do go, it, go strictly reservations. Or if you do and you have reservations, have a firewall that controls the traffic that comes in and out, in and out per, IP. Well, so I, you know, I was thinking about that too, and and there's there's still a problem of lateral mm. movement within, ah, you know, yes, within yes. within the subnet. Okay, okay. Not that it's a perfect solution, but certain switches can can be configured. Ah, Mac filtering, yes, yes, I, I to have. not allow lateral movement. Yep. I don't trust it. It's not perfect, but it's one more barrier. Right. Right, and I think. My- <laughs> For for the for the ultimate in, in inconvenience, I think usually the way the Mac filtering is enforced is by uh, dropping the link state. <laughs> That's true. Although, actually, I'm thinking of something slightly different than Mac filtering. I'm thinking actually of um, even if it is on the switch and a valid port and a valid Mac, not letting multiple uh, not letting oh yes 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 ports yes. talk to each other, right. which actually is kind of breaking the convention of what a switch should be. Right, but I have seen that technology. Right, yeah. Well, uh, but, you know, but first and foremost is understanding if your server hardware has this functionality and if it's up and running. Yeah, exactly right. And but you know it's it's interesting because there was a I think one of the reports in the wake of that that most recent super micro IPMI problem. Somebody did a a scan of the internet and found I think it was thirty two thousand systems. That it, you basically could trivially retrieve the the administrator password for that for that inter, you're not the not the inner not the administrator password for the server itself, but for the the uh, IPMI interface, which should give you like the ability to power things down. Yes, and yes, and it's, it's non-trivial. No, absolutely not. And you I, usually, I think a lot of times that you can do KVM kind of access with them too. So it's it's definitely not a great thing, but you know, I got to I got to thinking, well, how can how in the world can you have 32,000 of these things connected and and that kind of makes sense. If you just sit them on if you just sit them on a network that's wide open to the internet and and uh you know, you've got DHCP available, it's just going to get an address. Yeah, assuming no NAT or anything. Right. And, and you know, the other thing I would say is very basic. Go to the BIOS, see if you can shut this damn thing off. Yeah, yeah. I, 
I read some of the read some of the forums that one of the listeners pointed us to, and it doesn't doesn't look like you can. I, I understand I'm sounding like a grumpy old man. Turn the damn thing off, you know. But you know, end of the day, you are responsible for what's running on your gear, right? Even if the manufacturer throws it out there and doesn't tell you and is completely stupid about it, I get that. But it's still on us as the admins to know it and deal with it. Yep. Yeah, I don't disagree with that completely. So I next- will say, I you know, I normally don't drink during the podcast. This daiquiri is kicking my ass, so I apologize. <laughs> it's been it's last day of the quarter. It's been a Monday. I needed a drink. That's okay. It's so all right. Little, little, uh, it's all right. Yeah. All right. Take a breath. You're normally the uh the tipsy one. I know, and I'm not. So our next uh next question is how would one handle a situation where the business has accepted a risk by and not listening to the counsel or advice given by the CISO? This is a tough one. It is a tough one. Although I do have some thoughts, but you first. All right. So, you know, first thing I'll say is a lot of companies handle this situation by uh, keeping email and mini- meeting minutes. <laughs> um. <laughs> okay. All right. Yes. But I'm going to go with the intent of the question is not CYA. Uh, right. Right. I agree. And that, but that was a funny one, right? So, yes. Sorry. So, uh, you know, I, I think part of it depends on the level of importance of of the advice that's not being accepted. Is it, you know, is it? That they are being you know, just overly risky, and you disagree with their, you know, the the philosophy, or are they breaking the law? You know, those are there. There are different <laughs> shades of gray. It's a good point. And you know, I think, uh, I th- but I think at the end of the day, and I guess the other point I I, I had wrote, written down was, you know, if if you've got somebody like that board member in Australia who who doesn't see the ROI and in uh, information security, you know, it doesn't really matter. You're, you're not going to convince them. But the, the other, the other thing I'll say is if you are a CISO and I guess depending on where the CISO sits within your organization, the expectation is that you are part of the senior leadership team and you are part of, you know, the, the decision-making group. And it is incumbent on you to, you know, state your case and the business may make decisions that that you know aren't the most sensible from a you know from any kind of perspective right at any time it might not be the best marketing decision it might not be the best product development decision it might not be the best acquisition decision but at the end of the day after the after the senior leadership team has made a decision you you know it's your job to kind of you know put your oars in the water and and row and the other thing i'll say is if you do that um, you know, and you get some, you get some uh, political capital, as they say. And you know, when when something more important comes along the line, you you know, and you do say this is a really bad idea, and you're seen as a as a team player. That you may you may have uh, you know a better time convincing them of 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 uh, you know whatever problem you're you're seeing. So, what do you think? Yeah. So, I had a couple notes here on this, and. You know, first off, in my mind, the way this question was asked is, hey, you know, I see this risk. I've warned about it. I've talked about it. I've escalated it. Ultimately, the business has chosen not to mitigate this risk to what I think is an acceptable level. Mm -hmm. So what do I do? First thing I would say is plan for a breach. Expect it to happen. 
And with that expectation, what are you going to do? How do you get a response plan ready? How do you plan that response plan out? How do you have a, uh, something that makes it look like, yep, I was ready for this? Not as an I told you so moment, but just, hey, you know, you want to go driving uh, 120 miles an hour? You're probably going to hit the wall. I've got a triage plan ready to go. In that, you need to understand what the most likely avenue of attack is, what the most likely risk is based on what you're warning about, right? You're saying, hey, you know, we don't have, I'm going to make something up here. <clears throat> we don't have a web application firewall in front of our website. Our website is riddled with cross-site scripting and buffer overflows and all sorts of SQL injections. Somebody's going to own our fire, own our website. So then what I would start doing is once I've identified what the most likely problem is going to be is build a monitoring platform in some way around that problem so I know about it as quickly as I possibly can and I have a remediation plan in place. And from that, I figure out what my most likely attack is going to be, what my most important data is, figure out a response plan, and then start prioritizing what my most important data is, second most, third most, fourth most, and have a plan in place. Second thing I would say is continue to preach the cause. Don't give up. Don't be the boy or cried wolf. But a lot of times I've seen executives say no 100 times before they say yes. And so without eroding your own credibility and without eroding your own ability to have influence, continue to bring this up on a regular basis as appropriate to the culture of your organization. And eventually it may bubble up to the point where they will do something. You know, you don't know all the things that that executive is balancing in terms of the issues on their plate. You don't know why they're making that decision. There could be other bigger issues. They're trying to keep the company just as a going viable concern that week. And the situation may change a quarter from now. That's a, that's a really great point. It's a really great point. And the other thing I would say is, um, and this is something I sucked at so badly in my career. So if anybody's listening who I used to work with in the past, let me just say I'm sorry I was such a dick to work with because I always thought being right was the only thing that mattered. That is such a short-term mentality. And we do this in InfoSec all the time. We do this in IT all the time. I'm right, so I don't have to be nice. I'm right about this. You're wrong. Get your shit straight. I don't need to deal with you. That is not effective in business. So what I would say is, don't learn to lead from a position. Your position does not give you power. Your influence, your credibility, your ability to communicate is what gives you power in an organization. And this is something that I kind of came into later as a, as a realization in life. I got away with being very difficult to work with for a long time because I was good enough to get away with it. But as soon as I stumbled, I had a lot of people who would jump all over me. And the problem is with that is it's not about being nice, nice and making everybody, but they have to at least respect. They have to at least acknowledge that you're not really difficult to work with and you've got the right ideas in mind. It's not ego-driven. So, you know, what I would say is if you're in an InfoSec leader, leadership position, one of the key skill sets you've got to learn is communication and leading from influence. Well It's said. difficult. Yeah, it's difficult. You know, and I'll throw one other thing out here on this. One thing that, that I've, uh, I, I try to, do a decent amount about is read about business and in part because I always wanted to run my own company and, and you know I'm pushing 40 now I don't know if that's going to happen or not but 
So, but I've always been really interested in entrepreneurship and leading and, you know, running my own gig. It's part of what got me into sales engineering out of just pure IT operations. And one source for a lot of good information that I found recently is uh, a guy by the name of Dave Ramsey. He's well known for his, his anti-debt personal, uh, you know, financial advice. But he also has a second brand, if you will, called Entree Leadership. And there's an Entree Leadership podcast, which is all about business, all about leadership, highly recommended. So go check it out. Anyway, so, but that comes back into understanding how to communicate, understanding how to prioritize, understanding how to get that. So those are my thoughts. What do you think? Awesome. Okay. I think, I think you need to have daiquiris more often. <laughs> Fair enough. So, uh, if, you know, by the way, this is a lot easier to say than it is to do. Yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully, hopefully somebody will get some, some inspiration out of it. So our next question is, what is the cheapest security solution or approach that you see organizations failing to implement? And what is the, or what is the most cost-effective security solution or approach that you see organizations failing to implement? So, um, you know, t- to me, this is a this is a really tough one. But I would say, and this is going to come out of come out of left field, uh, educating IT staff about threats and hacker methods is probably one of the most cost effective, in my mind at least, the most cost effective things you could be doing. And then after that, it's probably hardware and software inventory management. What do you think? Mm, cheapest automated patching. Keep your stuff up to date. Yeah. Good. Yeah, um, you know, it, just as simple as, you know, assuming you're not a very diverse, complicated job, but for your Windows boxes, just have them patch all the time, please. Most cost-effective. Remove Java? <laughs> uh, this is a tough question, right? Because what does cost-effective mean? I read this as what is the most effective. I would say true whitelisting technology, a la a bit nine or a solid core or yeah. others. Mm-hmm. Um, the you know the other thing that I'll say on this one, and this is this could develop into a longer rant, and this is something Jerry and I were talking about before the show is, I think one of the most cost effective is not overworking your team. The problem with InfoSec is it can be completely interrupt driven and completely info uh, reactive. I have a big problem with that because to really be good at InfoSec, you need a lot of spare time to think, to understand the interrelations of different things, to, to really dig into big, hairy problems and figure out how to secure them. If your InfoSec team is just reacting to incidents and reacting to whatever the fire drill of the day is, they are missing the big picture. They're being very tactical and they're not being strategic. To be strategic, you've got to get out of the rat race of day-by-day InfoSec. You've got to have time to think about, hmm, you know, that lab box might actually have a connection over to this database server that actually has a connection into this DMZ. Huh, I should go look at that. You can't do that if you're stuck in tactical day-by-day firefighting. Yeah, yep, absolutely. So have Slack on your I, you know, InfoSec and IT teams but make sure that it's useful time. It kind of goes that, you know, back in the day, Google had this 15 or 25% of their free time. I can't remember which it was. Was it 15% free time to work on their own thing? Something like that. They had some chunk of time that they could look, work on whatever they wanted. I'm not saying that. Uh, you know, direct them. 
but go be proactive in security. Go investigate. Go dig. Go look at things. Go figure stuff out. Figure out how that attaches to that and how this all connects together. And wow, you know, let's go play war game with, you know, let's say one of our suppliers says this uh, lease line connection to us goes bad. What would that do? If you're not able to do that, you're really hurting your long-term viability of coming up with weird pocket cases and how to address them. Yeah, and I'd say that's becoming um, a lot more important to do as as time goes on because this you know things are getting much more much more complicated as as we as we see, and at the same time, the opportunity you know to be introspective like that is going down because you know IT is becoming kind of a you know a, a race to to zero. You know how 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 can we optimize all of the slack out of the system and that by itself, I think, is going to cause a lot of problems for the very reasons you just you just uh, outlined. So good, you know, good point, really good point. Uh, our next question is: What security solution do you see companies implementing incorrectly? And to me, it's vulnerability management. Mm, interesting. Why? Because I see a lot of companies thinking of vulnerability management in terms of patches mm. and instead of in terms of vulnerabilities. And that's a, mm-hmm. that's a really big problem. I mean, hopefully the, the difference is really obvious, right? But uh, if, you know, let, let's just pick on Heartbleed. And I think I talked about this last week too. You know, if you've got a whole bunch of different pieces of technology and, you know, something like Heartbleed comes out and, uh, you know, you may not, you may be vulnerable in a whole lots of different places, uh, but you only have patches for, you know, for some of the technology. But you're just because you don't have patches for the other stuff doesn't mean that you're not vulnerable there. And you know, it, it kind of comes back to you. You've got to, you've got to have some kind of a plan to address those vulnerabilities if you can't patch. Be, you know, just because you can't patch, it doesn't go away. You've still got to deal with it. It gets harder, absolutely. Yeah, no, I think that's very valid, and I, I love your point that just because there's not a patch for it from the vendor doesn't mean there isn't a vulnerability. I think that's that's an absolute key statement. You should you know put that on bumper sticker. <laughs> so, what about you? Uh, you know, this is kind of a tough one for me. Um, I I think DLC. I think a lot of people have a false sense of security on DLC, and they don't they don't deploy it properly. I, I would actually lump into here my previous rant of people don't have enough time to monitor their security solutions in general and do the care and feeding. So I think there's a general statement of don't throw a blinky box out there and ignore it. You've got to have the staff to, to optimize that technology. Um, yeah, this is a good one. I, <clears throat> I don't know that I've ever really seen a well-functioning DLP. Yeah, sorry, did I say DLC? Yeah, DLP, yes. Um, See how I did that? That was subtle, wasn't it? That was. That was very, very, very slick of you. Um, so yeah, DLP. I'll go with that. <laughs> Good. But, you know, I could name so many, right? Firewalls, IPS, you know, so many I could name, but we'll go with DLP. I'll put my uh, stake around on that. I like it. It makes a lot All of right. sense. Wish I had thought of that. All right. Uh, next one was, was Jerry too defeatist about defending against APTs? 
And so uh, I guess it was about, probably about 10 episodes back. I <laughs> I was pretty, you know, I, I guess I was having a weak moment. And uh, and I, I, I don't necessarily think I'm wrong entirely on this. But I, I made a comment, something to the effect of, you know, you're, you're not going to stop a, um, you know, a an advanced av- adversary like the NSA. And so, you know, you, you shouldn't really count them as, as your adversary, you know, you need to focus on, on other more productive things. And, you know, I took some heat for that because, you know, the, the, the point made was, well, you, you, you ought to, you ought to do what you can do because everything that you do is going to, to help protect you against other kinds of attacks that aren't necessarily, you know, at APT, NSA, China style things. And that's a good point. But you know, but I, I think the the reason that I said what I said is, you know, was was for a specific purpose because I see a lot of companies and organizations and whatnot thinking about them, you know, about their risk in terms of how do they protect themselves against you know, and their data against uh, eavesdropping by the NSA, and 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 I go back to the point that, you know, if the NSA wants to look at your data. They are going to look at your data. And I'm not saying that you should not invest in, in prudent controls. I'm just saying that the NSA can outspend any company, you know, a hundred to one. You know, <laughs> I work for a really big company and, uh, and you know, their budget is, is uh, far more uh, big than our entire revenue. So there, that's, it, it's, you know, it's, it's just a non-starter. Um, but I don't think that's you know th- my point again wasn't to say that you shouldn't you shouldn't uh, implement prudent controls. It's just that you know I, I think if you are if you're setting yourself to be the uh, you know the ruler of the world, you're probably going to be disappointed. It's not a, it's not achievable, and you need to have a, obtainable reasonable goals. And I just don't think that it's reasonable to expect you're going to keep the NSA or the Chinese government out of your stuff. That's all. So um, I had a lot of thoughts on this. Uh, so the question was, was Jerry too defeatist about defending against APT? My answer, no. <laughs> wow. That was deep. <laughs> all right. <laughs> moving on. What are, the, what are the best KRIs to monitor in InfoSec? Hey, Jerry, what's a KRI? It, KRI is a key risk indicator. And So, for the record, I read this as a key results indicator. Oh. Which is a management term. Yeah. No, it, it's a key risk indicator. And it's uh, okay. it's kind of a COSO-COBIT kind of a, of a thing, right? And, and one of the problems I see with KRIs is that it's like, a, it's like cloud, you know? It it can mean so many different things to so many different people, and and rightly so. You know, you've got your you know you've got all kinds of different flavors of of uh, of cloud, and you know f- for for different circumstances. And you know, I think the same can be said of KRIs. But the, speaking of Coso, Coso has a really really great uh, analogy. Question. Go ahead. For those who don't know, don't know. What is COSO? I forget the acronym, but it's um, 
anyway, it 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 was a it was a group that came together. I believe it was in the aftermath of the SNL scandal, if I'm not mistaken, that that put together a a bunch of of controls, right? Risk and security controls. So, uh, and any anyway, I don't I don't remember. That's okay. I just whenever we throw out acronyms, I like to define or at least give a pointer. Yep. Nope. Good. Good question. But uh, you know. And anyhow, could, there's a there's a, a PDF, and I'll I'll put a link to the PDF out in the uh, in, in the show notes. But they have a they have a really great analogy for key risk indicators that I that I really liked, and that is look, consider a uh, consider a restaurant, right? And and the restaurant wants to, obviously to be uh, you know a going concern, and they want to they want to know ahead of time when their business is going to slow down. And so if you think about what a key risk indicator is intended to do, it is intended to uh, in some way measure and give you some headlights on on where your business is going to have problems. And so great, this, this, this COSO analogy is so perfect, right? So, so again, thinking about the, the restaurant, the restaurant finds that they're, they're the people that come, the amount of people that come and eat at their restaurant is a function of how much uh, income or, you know, dis- disposable income people have to spend. And they, they further find that you can tell how much disposable income people have, or, you know, you, you, you can kind of gauge it based on the price of gas. Because as the price of gas goes up, lots of people have less disposable income, and and so they they what what they find is that naturally over the course of time, and there's it's a, it's a leading indicator, right? So it doesn't happen right away. But as the price of gas goes up, eventually, shortly after that, people have less dispo- disposable income, and they go out to eat less. So some at some point after the gas prices spike. The restaurant's business goes goes down, and so that gives the the restaurant some some headlights on you know a, a future slowdown in their in their operations. And so, I think that it's it's difficult to come up with a you know a firm mapping to information security, and that's in fact why Coso doesn't do it themselves, right? You know, there are I've and by the way I've searched, right? There are not a lot of uh, really any great maps of of, of I, uh, security KRIs, and, and I think part of the reason is because it's very dependent on your organization. And so, uh, you know, when I when I think about from an IT security perspective, what are the key risks that you're likely to think about in terms of supporting? The, the really high-level strategic objectives of your company. And those strategic objectives are like staying in business and being profitable and, you know, those kinds of things. And so, you know, the, the risks are things like, you know, my uh, my intellectual property being stolen and replicated by some other cheaper, you know, cheaper producer that, that steals my secret sauce and no, I no longer have a competitive advantage. And, and how, how do you, 
then turn that into an indicator, you know, and that's, that's a difficult thing because it is, uh, honestly, it's pretty specific to your organization and to what you've got implemented. Uh, and, you know, I, I don't have a great answer for this and, and apparently neither, neither, uh, neither does anybody else there. I don't see any really great, uh, broad based advice on developing KRIs. So, you know, for, for other listeners, you know, if you have, I'd be interested in hearing, you know, what, what has your organization done? You know, we'll, we'll keep your, your uh, stuff confidential, but, you know, give us some ideas if you have some. Yeah, sadly, I got nothing on this one. No, that's fine. And then uh, the last question we have is, how much should organizations rely on fraud controls as part of their InfoSec defenses? And, you know, my, my answer is heavily. Uh, not, not exclusively, but heavily. And, and, and I say that because, you know, as, as these attacks become, as attacks in general, become more and more sophisticated, the only time that you're actually going to start catching some of these is at the fraud, you know, what I would call, you know, think about it. I like to think about this in terms of the credit card industry, right? You know, they, they are, they're very focused in the U S at least on fraud detection. Yeah. And they're, and they're pretty good, right? That's, that's, they invest in that and they can detect credit card fraud, whether that credit card fraud came as a result of, you know, somebody skimming cards at McDonald's or the target hack or, you know, something else, they doesn't matter to them. They, they kind of catch it all. And, you know, there's lots of different permutations of how it can come to be, but that is an effective solution. So, you know, you have to kind of judge based on what you're trying to protect. It may not be reasonable to rely that heavily on fraud controls based on, you know, based on the, the profile of your organization, or it may, you know, it may make sense that, you know, that is where you should be investing most of your, your money. Uh, it, it's, it's just very dependent on your, uh, on your specific organization. What do you think? Yeah, I think it's highly dependent on your organization. I, I like the concept of fraud controls because I think you can catch both intentional and unintentional insider threat uh, and hijacked insider threat, if that's a term, right? You know, where um, the bad guys have, have you know, taken over so many credentials. So, mm-hmm. But I think it's such a, a, a company-specific question. And that's the challenge with InfoSec, right? There is no one right, perfect answer. It really depends about your organization, your risks, your threats, your needs, uh, you know, what you consider important. So, but I think, you know, and, and fraud, by the way, fraud controls can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But in general, I like the concept, right? It's, it's looking at, in essence, behavior or, or patterns of behavior for anomalies, which I'm a big fan of. Um, not saying it's a perfect solution, but I think, um, anomaly detection is a better fundamental approach than, just a blacklist, but it's not perfect by any means. Right. Yeah. And it's not comprehensive. I mean, I don't think we should yeah. be throwing out our firewalls in, in favor of, uh, of antivirus it, or of, uh, sorry, of, of fraud controls. But, you know, I, I think the point is that you can't get, you can't get that business process view without 
the fraud controls because that's that's what it's really intended to to look at. And you know, we saw last week with the attack on the hedge fund and and the you know the the inset about the attack on the insurance company. You know, that's that's probably going to become more and more common, and and it's the fraud controls that are going to catch those things. And you know, it's also going to catch a lot of you know less important things. So uh, I I think it's to me fraud fraud controls are very important. But as you pointed out, is with many other things, fraud controls mean very different things to very different people. So your mileage may vary. Indeed. So that uh, that takes us to the end. If you know, if you uh, if you have any more questions for us, please send us an email to info at defensivesecurity.org. We would uh, we'll we'll be happy to compile some questions and then have another Q and A in a in a couple of weeks or whenever we get enough. If you uh, if you want to find the show in the show notes, you go to www.defensivesecurity.org. You'll you'll find links to all the stories that we talked about tonight and back episodes and whatnot. If you like the show. Go on iTunes and give us a couple of stars or, or a, a you know a, a review. That's always appreciated. You can follow the show on Twitter at Defensive Sec. You can follow Mr. Kellett on Twitter at Lurg and me on Twitter at Malicious Link. And with that, we will talk to you again next week. Take care. Good night. Bye bye.